Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 67th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. So we find ourselves in 1994. It's a big year. It's a year of controversy. It's also a year of very famous movies that everyone will still remember. Yeah. I'm excited for this one. I'm excited for this one too. I wonder how it's going to play out. We'll find out. We'll find out. But first we should talk about the events of 1994 to get ourselves situated in time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stuff happened this year. Yeah. Bill Clinton is president. Still president. And NAFTA is enacted this year. Yes. Huge piece of legislation for Clinton. Yeah. In retrospect, people not really happy about it. Yeah, fair enough. The Rwanda genocide begins this year and continues for a fair amount of it. But in less sad news, South Africa hosts its first fully multiracial election and elects Nelson Mandela. Yeah, that's very cool. Very that's exciting. Positive. In entertainment news, Kurt Cobain commits suicide this year. That's sad. Another sad one. And an even I don't know if this is really entertainment news. It's sort of entertainment adjacent news. Yeah. This is the year that Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman were murdered. Mysteriously. Yep. Who knows Mysteriously who did it? Mysteriously by an unknown person since no one has ever been convicted. But more entertainingly as part of this, this was the year that OJ Simpson's low speed chase in his white Ford Bronco captivated the nation and interrupted the broadcast of the NBA Finals Game 5. Yeah. That's how big of a deal it was. And Nancy Kerrigan is attacked this year by, as was later discovered, <laughs> some people that Tanya Harding had arranged to go. Her husband at the time. Her, hit her leg. Jeff yeah. Galuli. They whacked her in the knee. And there's that famous yep. clip of her going, why? Yeah. Well, you, you didn't deserve it, Nancy. Nobody deserves that. And in more sports news, the Major League Baseball strike, the longest ever strike in that sports history, and the first time I think that any major sport had had their, like the World Series didn't happen this year, <laughs> had had their postseason canceled because of it. It lasts for 232 days, the strike, well into the next year. Yeah. Big deal. Indeed. So honestly, if you're a sports fan, you're trying to watch the NBA Finals, you can't. You want to watch the World Series, you can't. You're looking forward to the Olympics, this competition between these two great skaters. No. Wow, bad year for sports fans. Yeah, when you think of it that way, you're right. Yeah. Bummer. Okay, so we mentioned at the top, this is a this is a big movie year. You're going to know most of these, if not all of them, I think. So let's get I into would it. Put money on you having heard of at least four of these movies. <laughs> yes. No matter who you are. So we can we'll go through our nominees as we always do in alphabetical order. Up first is Forrest Gump, a dramedy about a man with an IQ of seventy five living through some pivotal moments in U.S. history. It stars Tom Hanks, Robin Wright, Gary Sinise, and Sally Field. It's directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by Eric Roth. It was nominated for 13, and it won six. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Tom Hanks, Best Screenplay based on material previously produced or published, Best Film Editing, and Best Visual Effects. Next, we have Four Weddings and a Funeral, a romantic comedy about a group of friends that attend Four Weddings and a Funeral. It stars Hugh Grant, Andy McDowell, Kristen Scott Thomas, and John Hanna, 
It was directed by Mike Newell and written by Richard Curtis. It was nominated for two Academy Awards and it won zero. Next is Pulp Fiction, a series of vignettes about two criminal enforcers, their boss's wife, a boxer, and two robbers that overlap and intersect. It stars John Travolta, Samuel Jackson, Uma Thurman, Bruce Willis, Tim Roth, and Amanda Plummer, among others. Big ensemble in this one. It was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, nominated for seven. It won one. Best screenplay written directly for the screen, which went to Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Who shared a story by credit. Mm -hmm. Next, we have Quiz Show, a drama about the quiz show scandals of the 1950s. It stars Ray Fiennes, John Turturro, and Rob Morrow. Directed by Robert Redford and written by Paul Atanasio, it was nominated for four Academy Awards and it won zero. And then finally, we have The Shawshank Redemption, a drama about two prisoners who become friends. It stars Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. It was written and directed by Frank Darabont. It was nominated for seven, and it won zero. Hard out there for a lot of movies this year. Yeah. So the top five highest grossing movies of the year, to give you a sense of what was going on outside of the Oscars. Number one was The Lion King, which I believe became the highest grossing animated film of all time, at least at that point. Number two was Forrest Gump. Three, True Lies. Four, The Mask. And five, Speed. Was anything notable happening in film this year that hasn't come up or won't come up over the course of this? The only thing we pulled out, and I guess this has sort of come up before, is holy cow. This was quite a year for one Jim Carrey. Yeah, man. He had quite the 90s, but this year in particular is wild because he was in not one, not two, but three motion pictures you probably have heard of while still on In Living Color. Yes. So he was, of course, in The Mask, which we mentioned in the top five. I think what's Dumb and Dumber also in the top 10. Yeah, I believe so. And then also he was in the equally iconic Ace Ventura Pet Detective this year. So, whoa, you know, 1994, the year of Jim Carrey. Pretty wild. So as we mentioned, what won this year was Forrest Gump. And we said at the top, this was a bit of a controversial year. So let's dive into it. Mm -hmm. What was the consensus at the time about Forrest Gump winning, would you say? Well, obviously, it was a very popular and successful film. Number two at the box office, 13 nominations. And when it first came out, it was pretty well reviewed. So I don't know if at the time anyone was super shocked. By the yeah, way. I mean, it was well too mixed reviews. There were some people that, you yeah, know, wasn't it wasn't universally acclaimed, but generally positive. Yes, uh, I will say at the time, there was some talk about the differences, say, between Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Academy Awards. And I have an interesting quote from Quentin Tarantino about said debate. So going into the Academy Awards, he said, They've been making such a tremendous deal out of the fact that, oh, wow, Forrest Gump is the exact opposite of what Pulp Fiction is and vice versa. But I don't see them as being as drastically different or right and left. If you're familiar with Bob's work, actually, there's a tremendous amount of acid running through it. I actually think it's a black comedy. To me, when I was watching the movie, the moving moments and the touching moments, they're meant to be moving and touching, and they are. But the comedy element running through there, a subversive is the wrong word, but there's a big edge to it. A movie about that guy as the number one guy of America the last 20 years has got a bite. Okay. So, interesting. This is where we are in 1994. Yes. Then what happened? People have become very upset about Forrest Gump, to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. There has been a lot of criticism of Forrest Gump over the last, what are we now, like 30-ish years? And so... 
We pulled a couple of things. I feel like basically people now say that either Shawshank or Pulp Fiction should have won. In 2015, The Hollywood Reporter polled hundreds of Academy members asking them to re-vote on past controversial decisions, and those Academy members said Shawshank should have won. Pulp Fiction also comes up. I also pulled, you know, we've talked about it before. You Google these, like, worst winners lists or what should have won the Oscars. And this is from the Washington Post article where they go through a lot of the past years. And they have a scathing opinion of Forrest Gump at this point. They had fun writing this, you can tell. Yeah. According to this Washington Post article, Forrest Gump was a mawkish piece of cheap, tone-deaf manipulation that was embarrassing to watch even at the time, even while it crushed at the box office. Perhaps the worst Oscar travesty of all time, especially in the year of the exhilaratingly creative, mind-bending pulp fiction, which remains one of the best movies to come in on the middle of while surf. Sorry, which remains one of the. I think they're saying yeah. it remains one of the best movies to come in on the middle of while cable surfing at 11 p.m. For some reason, my brain has a very hard time parsing the end of that sentence, and I don't know why. But yeah, not not real positive about Forrest Gump there. I, I will say I pulled the Washington Post review from 1994, and it was positive. So different reviewers, I guess, yes. since these ones claim it was embarrassing to watch even at the time. Perhaps the worst Oscar travesty of all time. <laughs> wow. So I guess I should say then, do you agree? <laughs> That it was one of the worst Oscar travesties of all time? I can't say I do. So, yes, we should ask our general question. <laughs> Are you mad about it? Am I mad that Forrest Gump won? Sorry to, sorry to this person who wrote this Washington Post thing. I'm not mad that it won. Yeah, me neither. So that should be interesting to discuss. <laughs> okay. We should go through the rest of them. Would you have been mad if four weddings and a funeral won? I'm so mixed on this one for some okay. reason. I mean, I guess I could say yes, but I wouldn't have been that mad. Okay. How about you? Yes. Would you have been mad if Pulp Fiction had won? I would not have been mad. How about you? I will also say no. Would you have been mad if Quiz Show won? No. <laughs> you? Uh, I will I will also say no. And then would you have been mad if Shawshank won? I'm going to say no. You? I will say no as well. Okay. So we have our one double yes, and that's four weddings and a funeral. So we should start there. So I guess to begin what it's about... It is the story of a group of friends over the course of a year of events in their life. So they're going to these various weddings, and then Hugh Grant's character keeps crossing with Andy McDowell's character, who's this American woman. So he meets her at one of the weddings. The two of them have a one-night stand that's very meaningful for him. She has to leave the next day to go back to America. And then he's like thinking about her the whole time. He sees her again at the next wedding they go to, but... Now she has a fiance, so he's shocked by that. And then he ends up going to her wedding, and one of their friends passes away at that wedding. They go to his funeral, and then there is a final wedding that is Hugh Grant, who's supposed to be getting married to someone other than Andy McDowell. Yes. And she shows up at the wedding and has just split up with her husband. (laughs) And it's very awkward timing for him because he's still been thinking about her this whole time. And then that wedding doesn't happen. And you see that the two of them get together post film. Mm -hmm. There are also all but a bunch of other friends who are like having their own romances. What are your thoughts on it? So I should start off by saying 
I love that this movie was nominated for Best Picture. Like, I want to live too. in a world. That's my favorite thing about it. <laughs> where this kind of movie gets nominated for Best Picture again. It is a rom com through and through. Obviously, the 90s was a great decade for rom coms. And as I think we explore more 90s years, we'll probably get into it more. But conceptually, I, ju- mm-hmm. I just love it. This movie didn't work for me super well. I think yeah. the structure of it is interesting that we're just jumping from these four weddings and this funeral. But I think you end up losing the development of the characters' relationships. So I I both felt like I didn't get to know any of the characters super well. And then also I wasn't Mm -hmm. super invested in the Andy McDowell-Hugh Grant relationship. And yeah, you don't know over what time period the movie takes place. It's really unclear. Well, they do. They tell you every time what the jump is, but it sort of makes it more confusing because the jumps are weirdly small amounts of time, I think. For the events that are happening. Because the second wedding is two people who first hooked up at the first wedding. And, and it's like three months later. Yeah. They not only decided to get married, but they planned the whole wedding and had it. And you're like, wow. I mean, they show her going into the wedding and she has this huge, intricate dress. And I'm like, they couldn't have made that dress in three months. <laughs> right. Like she went the day after that wedding <laughs> to, to get, get her, this Or she already made. had it or something. I don't know. Yeah. And so, yeah, it also results in a lot being told, not shown. So when you get to the final Hugh Grant wedding and Andy McDowell shows up and she's broken up with her fiance, you're like, uh, OK, because <laughs> she has to tell him like, oh, yeah. we broke up a couple months ago and yada, and yada, he's yada. like, why didn't you tell me? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I think you I mean, you want to watch things develop and you lose that interconnection. So mm-hmm. and I don't know that I particularly like Hugh Grant and Andy McDowell. She does sleep with him while she's engaged. And then she's like, oh, no, my marriage didn't work out. And you're like, well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How how invested were you in that marriage to yeah. begin with? And Unclear. then the woman that Hugh Grant ends up marrying is sort of played for laughs, but I feel bad for her. Yeah. He treats her pretty poorly. So, you know, it's, it's again, it's hard to get invested in the romance. I don't know that I feel like he and Andy McDowell have a ton of chemistry, mm-hmm. which also doesn't help. One part of this movie that I did find really successful was the funeral. The funeral was John Hannah sad. ripped my heart out. Yeah. <laughs> So the funeral, the guy who dies at Annie McDowell's wedding, he's in a a gay relationship with another one of their friends. And I don't think it's unclear from the film, but maybe if you're a viewer in 94, you wouldn't quite piece things together. And then the thing that really broke my heart was at the funeral, they introduced Matthew as Garrus' closest friend. friend, yeah. And I was like, oh, God, that's awful. And then he reads this beautiful poem about him. And it's it really works. Yeah, it's wonderful. That's one of the more interesting things about the movie, I think, is how that relationship is handled. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think they're trying to hide from you that they're together. Like, when you no. are introduced to the characters, the two of them are, like, in their house together, getting ready to go to a wedding. It's like, if they were a man and a woman, you would have assumed from the beginning that they yes. were in a relationship, right? So it's interesting because it's 94. They're definitely playing it subtly, even though I don't think they're hiding it. And then to get to this explicit moment of the eulogy and then how that plays is interesting but then even more interesting afterwards there's this moment with Hugh Grant and one of their friends where they say this thing about how they were like sort of surprised that the two of them were actually married all along and you're like surprised how you knew they were together (laughs) right like what is that supposed to mean I was just very intrigued by how that played in the movie because yeah it's it's very interesting interesting. it's definitely interesting what were your overarching feelings very similar to yours I would say my first note is so nice to see rom-coms get their due yeah (laughs) like I I want more rom-coms nominated for things I'm very excited about that this is the first movie by Richard Curtis who goes on to write a bunch of rom-com classics Notting Hill 
Bridget Jones, Love Actually. He's like the British rom-com guy. And I will say, I do not think this is the the best of his films. Yeah. (laughs) So there is that element. I think the structure is super cool as like a writing experiment. I think that's really neat. I think the Hugh Grant, Andy McDowell relationship is the least successful part about it, which is not what you want from a rom-com. But I think the friend group is really cool. And he tends to write interesting, cool friend groups. That's one of my favorite things about Notting Hill. Mm -hmm. Though I would say that Hugh and Julia have better chemistry than Hugh and Andy. Yes. So yeah, I thought that the gay couple is the most interesting thing about it. I love John Hanna. I wish John Hanna had gone on to be a romantic lead in more stuff. He only really was in Sliding Doors over in this country. I like that he has a deaf brother and that's just like oh, a part yeah. of it. Oh yeah, I like I that character too. And I like their relationship. Yeah, they speak in sign language to each other. Their relationship's really cool. But I would say, yeah, I wish that I liked the movie more than I do. Yeah. Oh, the other thing is, I think this might have been really like the first time at least Americans had seen Hugh Grant. Oh, yeah. So that's kind of a big deal. It is. He's doing his full Hugh Grant thing. Yeah. The floppy hair, the charming awkwardness. The stumbling over his words, the impression you see people do of Hugh Grant. He's a fully formed Hugh Grant in this movie. But yeah, generally, I love the cast. It's got a ton of great 90s British character actor types that you would see in a bunch of other movies. And more rom-coms, please. Absolutely. Academy Awards. You can do it. Okay. So that's Four Weddings and a Funeral? Yeah. I don't have much else to say about it, I don't think. Great. So then what order are we doing all these other ones in? So I mentioned to you before, I think we... I don't even know if we usually at this point, we often will do the winner last if we have all yeses. I do feel like for me, maybe unfairly, like my reaction to some of these other pictures relates to Forrest Gump and also the general reaction to Forrest Gump. So I don't know if we want to do that first or still do it last. Sure. Okay. Why not? Let's do Forrest Gump. What's Forrest Gump about? For the one person who hasn't seen it. Yeah. So the one person who hasn't seen it, I'll be brief. Forrest Gump is this character who grows up in the South. As we mentioned in our description, he has an IQ of 75. He is raised by a single mother, Sally Field, in the 50s. He's still a child when Elvis comes through. So that's the 50s. And so he has this best friend from childhood, Jenny, who the two of them, their stories will be followed through the process of the film. It's this sort of retrospective where he ends up involved in most of the most iconic moments of the 50s, 60s, and 70s in some various way so that you're on this journey through history. Multiple times throughout it, he gets invited to the White House to visit the president for some various thing that he's done. Meanwhile, Jenny has sort of gone the counterculture 60s mm-hmm. and 70s path. So she's been involved with these various anti-war group she's a folk singer for a while she's caught up in she's living various... a very bohemian lifestyle really yes and the two of them are running into each other every once in a while along the way over the course of this at one point he had reconnected with jenny and the two of them had sex and then she left mm-hmm. afterwards and then towards the end of the movie he hears from her again he goes to see her and finds out that she has had a son that is his son who she's named Forrest after him. And she has now gotten sick. She has what they don't name, but is clearly AIDS. She has a virus that they can't figure out what it is. And it's the 80s. And so then she comes home. The two of them get married so that he can raise the son because she's about to die. And then the end of it is him sending young little Forrest off to school, who is a baby, Haley Joel Osment. Yes. <laughs> And he's smart. He's so smart. He's so smart. Oh, Tom Hanks will make you cry in this one. 
Yeah. So I feel like there's a couple of different ways to talk about this movie. I think we can talk about it as just the experience of watching it. I certainly have my own reading of it, but I do want to dig a little bit into what people have said about this movie, why it has garnered such a strong negative reaction yes. after the fact. I will say just as a watch, this movie works for me. It affects me emotionally. I'm crying throughout. I love the characters. I love the performances. I think Gary Sinise, particularly as Lieutenant Dan, is so good. He's fantastic. I love Sinise. Yeah. But Robin Wright is great. Obviously, Tom Hanks is great. Sally Fields. They're all great. They're all always great. And they're great. <laughs> McKelty Williamson, who is Bubba. Yeah. He's fantastic. He's great. He makes me cry. His death gets me every time. Yeah. Robert Zemeckis is always pushing things forward with special effects for sometimes for better or for worse. But uh, I think in sure. this case, for better. I don't know if to the modern eye, the cutting forest into the historical footage looks perfect, but it's still pretty impressive. But what still looks perfect is Lieutenant. Lieutenant Dan's legs. Yeah, they look incredible. Crushed it, Zemeckis. Yeah, overarchingly, the film still works for me. I watch it. I appreciate watching it. Mm -hmm. I laugh. I cry. That's going on. I cry. I finished it. I think my last note was, I think it's delightful. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it works for us on a viewing experience. So then what's the big deal? Why is everyone so upset about it? For a lot of different reasons. I was trying to find all of the articles I've seen over the years. So people will say the movie is racist. People will say the movie is ableist. People will say the movie is anti-intellectual. People will say the movie is anti-meritocratic. People will say it's schmaltzy and manipulative. People say it whitewashes and dumbs down American history at every turn. It's aggressively conservative and right-wing propaganda. I've seen people say it's apolitical as a complaint. I've seen people say it's too cynical. I've seen people call it subversive. I've seen people call it a dark satire. It's all over the place. It's really fascinating how many different ways people hate this movie. It's pretty wild. It's an interesting thing when a film can be read any fucking which way. (laughs) People have clearly watched this and had a million different experiences watching it. So what does that say about the directors? They were successful or unsuccessful? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to run into movies and we have run into movies where we want the movie to be more clear about what it's trying Mm -hmm. to say. I think we should shout out, we did read this section of a fascinating doctoral thesis. I love it. And this is just, you can Google this and find it online. It's not behind any paywalls. It's by a guy named James Amos Burton. It's called Film, History, and Cultural Memory, Cinematic Representations of Vietnam-Era America During the Culture Wars, 1987 through 1995. Specific. Yes. James posits that following the release of Forrest Gump, Newt Gingrich and the right made an aggressive attempt to claim this movie because it was well, something I would Americans say liked. Yeah. Following the release of Forrest Gump and the subsequent praise, mm. the public acclaim and love for Forrest Gump, then Newt Gingrich. Yes. And conservatives attempted to claim it right. for their conservative cause. Just, they saw like, oh, this is a thing that Americans love. Let us show America how it is us. Mm-hmm. And the left made no such attempt <laughs> to indicate how it might reflect more liberal values. And I think in some ways that's become really embedded in the perception of the movie. The fact that Newt Gingrich claimed it equals to some people that it is this conservative text, which you know James pushes back on. Yes, he does in various great ways. But he also interestingly mentioned a ton of critics, liberal critics who had initially responded well to the film. And then post the Newt Gingrich, post that happening, several of these critics walked back their praise for Forrest Gump, which is 
fucking fascinating <laughs> like yeah. for there to be this ongoing discourse and dialogue about the movie because of the politics of the day yeah so it's all interesting i think i have a stronger reaction to some of the critiques and others which is probably to be expected i don't know do you have a general feeling about all these <laughs> this broad range of upset there i mean there are a ton where the critique is just sort of nonsense like the person you found who said that there were no women who died of aids in the 80s so it was absurd and it's like yeah that's just not true right that's just not true so why are we supposed to engage listen to anything that you say but i do think it's interesting and also familiar to me to see conservatives more effectively playing like a pop culture game with the public consciousness and just deciding this is populist we speak for the people and liberals are just like okay i guess so and it's like why can't you be populist yeah (laughs) why aren't you even pushing back on it and giving your reading of the film because if you talk to and listen to the makers of the film the writer, the director, all of the stars, pretty much all of them are liberal. (laughs) They have some sort of interesting like bona fides of other liberal things they had made that he lists in the thesis. And it's really interesting that initially you could watch and be like, I'm liberal. These people agree with me. I'm sure they're making a thing that we all agree on. And that's the reading of it. And then as soon as someone steps in and says, no, well, actually... It's conservative for you to just be like, oh, I guess I was wrong. (laughs) Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. In the James Amos Burton piece, he does talk about how there was an attempt to promote the film apolitically because A, it was a very expensive film to make and they were like, we got to make our money back because Hollywood is a business. Yep. And there was concern that the right would demonize the movie and then they would not be successful. No, the right's never done that when a movie has come out. But if you choose to think about the film apolitically, I think an interesting way to read the film is supported by the Zemeckis quote, which I think may be from the James Amos Burton piece, or I might have found it somewhere else, where he says, when I really think about it, what I found compelling about the story was it was this story about all different types of love, love between friends, between mother and sons, son and mother, romantic love, friendship, you know, it was just all this stuff and grieving, you know, all this great stuff in there, which is why I think the film is very popular. So everyone can kind of relate to that. And I think the heart of the story is for all of our lives, history is happening in the background and you may interact mm-hmm. with it, but ultimately that's not your day to day. And what your day to day is, is your interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an interesting reading of this film about Listen, the universe is chaos. Most of life is luck. There is no fate. There is no destiny. Don't get tied into that. It's going to ruin your life if you're like, Lieutenant Dan, my destiny was to die in the war. And now I'm so depressed that I didn't die in the war. You got to let that go. And so, you know, I think for me, like the crux of this reading, too, is there's a part where Forrest has asked Jenny to marry him after she's come back after having a really hard time for a long time. And she says, you know, you don't want to marry me. You don't know what love is, Forrest. And he says, I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is. And so, like, yes, obviously, Forrest has the privilege of he's a a white man, but he also has the privilege of being someone who was raised by a mother who really loved him. And for yeah. Jenny, well, love is, and that's an experience she does not have. Yeah. Right. For Jenny, love has always been sullied by sex, right? Her father growing up was sexually abusive. And that's what she's chasing, right? She then tries to express her love to Forrest through sex. She's dating all these guys who are horrible. It's yep. all tied in. And I think there's a reading from the conservative side of, oh, you know, Jenny, this free spirited person has to be domesticated to be happy. She has to have this child. But I think it's the first relationship in her life that is love free of sex. Her relationship with her child? Yeah. yeah. 
And so that's when she finally understands what love is. To me, I think that's a fair reading of the film as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting because obviously the film was promoted apolitically. Political things are happening in it, but I would say it is, I'm not surprised that people can watch this movie and put their own personal politics over top of whatever they're seeing. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously that's something people will do any anyway, because that's how people go about encountering the world. But it's sort of more like a recitation of events than it is a, a cohesive political statement about the value of those events. I do think it's interesting. I would say almost all of the things where they've put put Forrest into a historical event those are all played for humor. I, I mm-hmm. saw a lot of things that were saying like, oh, they put him in and it's all a ploy on sentimentality and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all of those moments are funny beats. And he is right in his piece that they only play as funny if you already are culturally and politically politically literate, right? You have mm-hmm. to know the context of all of these events to make the jokes of Forrest being in them work. So I do think that's kind of interesting because... There's a surface level reading where him being at the integration of the University of Alabama is undercutting the importance of the moment because you're playing it as a funny beat. But I don't think that that's the intention of what they're doing. Yeah. There's more complicated stuff going on in all of the historical moments than just the on the surface readings of it. So I don't know. I mean, a running thread in his piece was a lot of these people who are reading it as conservative propaganda are not giving much credit to audiences for being able to understand complicated and nuanced things in their films. So, yeah, I think it's good. And I think even if you're not reading this movie at that level, isn't the core message of Forrest is to, like, be nice to people? Yeah. How's that bad? I mean, I'm so mad about it. Well, because people, some people think they're centering white men uh, as the most important part of American history and blah, 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 and all these various readings. But yeah, that was also the flip side of one of the arguments I saw of of this idea that it's anti-intellectual and anti-meritocratic. So you want to film about a man who's not very smart who suffers because he's not very smart? That's the society you want to live in? That sounds like a fucking bummer. (laughs) How is that good? (laughs) It's like everything has a counterpoint to a counterpoint to a counterpoint with all of this because then there's the reading of like, really, it's a critique of the military because the fact that he really succeeds in the military because he is just happy to follow whatever they tell him to do is like not necessarily saying great things about them. Well, that was, the, I think, was that in the, the piece too? This film did not get military approval because they did not like how they were portrayed unsurprisingly oh that seems subversive to me that's pretty subversive because most films that have anything to do with the military get military approval i don't know if people know this about hollywood films about the military i also thought it was fascinating that this is one of the very first other than born on the fourth of july movies that showed veterans as part of the anti-war protests Mm -hmm. normally people were leaving those things separate but that very much was not the historical case yes so that's really interesting and i think somewhat subversive if you will (laughs) that's another thing that i've seen people complain about in terms of this film being apolitical is you know when force is going to make his statement about the war Mm -hmm. and they pull the plugs and they're like oh that's the that's the movie chickening out and i'm like it's clear he said something anti-war because the guy running the protest reacts really positively yeah he comes over and he's like thank you so much for saying that or something like that like clearly pro-military otherwise everyone on the stage would have been like get him off yeah but instead they were like Thank you for those words, you know. And he's clearly been through hell in the war. We all watched it. It's not like it's a pro-war movie. And then I think it's interesting that he ends that speech 
with, and that's all I have to say about that, which is the thing he says two other times in the movie when he is told the most heartbreaking stories yeah, of his life. He pretty life. much only says that when someone he loves has passed away. I think we can glean what the sentiment of his statement was from yeah. context clues. Right. I don't know. It's interesting. Everybody loves to hate stuff. Especially stuff that was popular with the masses, right? Well, it makes you feel so smart to be to be right when everyone else was wrong. If middle America loves it, it must be conservative nonsense. And it's like, maybe you should figure out, you know, why this is resonating with people and see what's really going on. I don't know if most of middle America would give you a hyper political statement. I think they would tell you, like, it really touched me. I could relate to, you know, mm-hmm. the loss of his mother, the loss of his friend, the loss of his loved yeah. one. <laughs> and that affected me. And you're like, that's not bad. You know what I always forget, and I think is not particularly conservative friendly, is the stuff at the very beginning when his single mother is struggling to raise him and they don't want to let him into the school. And she has to Fuck the principal. Yeah. Well, some people do read that as this movie punishing women so that a white man can succeed. But I mean, when are women not being punished in this country? Well, again, like, that's America, baby. I don't know what you want the movie to do about it. Exactly. Yeah. I I think it's realistic. (laughs) I don't think it's a surprise. It's not like like they make you watch it. It's not like rape porn or something. But the fact that it happens, you're just like, holy fucking shit, this is dark and it's like one of the first things that happens in the movie it's dark as hell no yeah i also right this movie is described as feel good and it's it's really sad it's a sad movie yeah it is a sad movie lieutenant dan though what a character i love lieutenant dan god gary sinise is the best I mean, the movie is so anti-Vietnam. That's a part of it that I think is interesting for people to have this conservative reading of it. What part of this movie is not vehemently anti-Vietnam War? I don't know. I don't know. There are a lot of interesting ways to read this movie. It's, It's saying a lot and doing a lot. I like it. Again, works on just a straight watch level. But I do think there's more to think about here and engage with. But yeah, it's fascinating the the Rorschach test this has become the backlash for America well anything else to say about Forrest Gump it's good it's an incredible Tom Hanks performance I mean it's a great performance there are lots of fun quotes that I wrote down I like when he says when he's telling them about how he started the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company he says Bubba Gump Shrimp it's a household name (laughs) (laughs) it's all great Uh, it is it's really good Okay, so great special effects, heart-wrenching at times, heartwarming at others, film, mm-hmm. an interesting journey, some great performances, some fascinating political commentary, depending on your read of the film. Yeah. <laughs> That's Forrest Gump. Read that chapter of James Amos Burton's thesis. Yeah, we'll, we'll post it or we'll tweet it or something. Yeah, I'll put it in the show description or, and we'll put, it, we'll put it on the website, so... Oh, yeah, it'll be on the website. This is the website, everybody. Oscarswrongpod.com. And like we said, we didn't read the whole thing. I'm going to guess the whole thesis is interesting. So give it a whirl. Hell yeah. Okay, what's next? Maybe we should do quiz show and then get into the other two that people really fight for. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Quiz show, tell me the brief rundown. So as we said, quiz show is about the quiz show scandals of the 1950s. Basically what happened is there were a number of trivia quiz shows and the network was feeding the people the answers and telling them when to win and when to lose. And it ended up getting investigated by Congress and basically there stopped being quiz shows for a while. 
Interesting. So that's like the what's happening throughout the movie. But it's really focusing in on Rob Morrow's character who works for Congress and is investigating the scandal. And then the two contestants on 21, mm-hmm. John Turturro, who was winning for a long time, and then the network told him he needs to take a dive because they want to install Charles Van Doren, who is the scion of this super famous, great American intellectual family and very handsome yeah. instead mm-hmm. of him. So they tell John Turturro to take a dive. He does because he's promised that he will be put on a panel show and then they don't follow up with him. He gets increasingly angry. He uh, goes to a grand jury. And so then Ron is trying to figure out if Charles Van Dorn, played by Ray Fiennes, is in fact cheating. Turns out he is. Mm-hmm. Ron tries to bring the whole thing down and he only ends up really hurting the individual. It does nothing to the networks, nothing to the sponsors. Yeah. Quiz shows do end for a while, but that's quiz show. So I've been telling you to watch this movie for years. This is a favorite film of mine. Spoiler alert. I'm going to rave about (laughs) it. But how did you feel about Quiz Show? I liked it a lot. We were talking before, I think before I even watched it, and you said you were noticing that you saw it somewhere. Was it Letterboxd? When I pulled it up on Amazon, it told me. Yeah. So it was like people who like Quiz Show also watch. And then they suggested a bunch of journalism movies. Shattered Glass. All the President's Men. Good night. Good luck. And I was like, oh. Yeah, this is my corner of, of the They movie have space. you pegged. And you were like, it's funny because it's not a journalism movie. And so then I watched it. And for all intents and purposes, it is a journalism movie. I will tell you right now. I mean, Fine. he may not be a journalist in name, but the investigation that he's running. I told you, if a movie has someone making a list of names and addresses and then visiting those addresses to ask questions of those people and then crossing them off the list. <laughs> On a yellow a legal pad. Movie. Exactly. It is a journalism movie. So I very much enjoyed it. I thought the performances were really good and it's full of actors that I like, though I will say I think Rob Morrow's accent is silly. (laughs) I did write a third, a half into the movie. I am really enjoying this, but basically everyone in it is insufferable, which I do stand by. (laughs) It's sort of surrounding these characters that it's interesting because Turturro is poor, but knows a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. He doesn't come from money, but he's very intelligent and he knows a lot of trivia. And so that's why he feels he has the right to continue to be the one who is doing well on this game show. And then Van Doren comes from lots of money and privilege and an old family, very well respected, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing, the cachet that comes with that. And then you have Rob Morrow in the middle who does not come from money, but did go to Harvard. Yes, he went to Harvard Law School. And is very invested in the sort of approval of the higher classes and the intellectuals. It's an interesting reading. You don't think that that is is part of it? I feel like that is a critique that his wife raises to him. Continue. I'll, I'll, okay, I'll, anyway. Yeah. We, yeah, we'll go back. Let's look it back. And so then it's interesting. And I do think it plays out well by the end. But I was judging him in the middle because there's a part of it where... He is doing his investigation. It becomes clear that, you know, everyone's cheating, even Van Doren, who has become his friend, basically, over the course of this investigation. And so by the end, he's going to bring it before Congress. John Turturro wants to testify, so he's going to. But Rob Morrow is trying to shield Van Doren from having to testify because he doesn't want to ruin his life. And his wife and his people around him are saying, like, why would we not bring him forward to testify? It feels like, you know everyone should testify that's the strongest case and we want to bring down these people and blah blah and he's saying he he only wants to target the network which is fair enough i think that's a reasonable goal and Turturro has already volunteered to 
be interviewed and Van Doren has not. But it just reads, I think, as him not wanting to sully the good name of his friend who is both someone that he now likes, but also someone who stands to lose a lot by having to appear in public and say that he did bad things, right? Because John Turturro doesn't have that much to lose, Mm -hmm. but Ray Fiennes' character does. And so I think as someone who is very much trying, he seems like, yes, I went to Harvard. We both went to Harvard. We're Harvard men and blah, blah, blah. And he wants to be a part of the club, even though there's this running thing of Jewish versus Gentile in it too, which is very interesting. But we can circle back around to that. But then by the end, I do think what happens is Mandoran eventually does have to testify and he says all these bad things that he did in his speech. But then he pleads for, you know, what would you call that? Like the forgiveness, forgiveness or whatever, the leniency of the senators. And as soon as he gives the speech, the people who had torn apart John Turturro during his testimony then are like, it was so brave of you, Thank you to come so forward and for say coming forward. Thank you so much for doing this. I mean, we we really appreciate it. And they have no questions. Yeah. <laughs> they ask him no questions. And Rob Morrow in that moment is like, this is kind of fucked, yeah. which is the thing. To be fair, there is one do. senator who is like an ethnic white yes. person from Long Island who is like, no, this is fucked. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we've tore apart this other guy. You people are ridiculous. Yeah. You're a bad person. You shouldn't have done it. You should have known better. Exactly. Which is like a reasonable point. Yeah. Because all along, you're like, fuck this guy who doesn't even need to be on the quiz show. He's only here for his own personal glory because he doesn't need the money. He comes from money. And he just wants to be like, I'm more famous than my intellectual father. And you're like, I don't know about this. So I, I thought that that scene brings it home for me it made it work Mm -hmm. that that happened and then rob morrow and the audience are like oh yeah this is bullshit this double standard that's happening here and i do love that then the network comes forward and it's like nothing's gonna happen to the network yeah (laughs) it gave me like obviously not as extreme but like judgment at nuremberg missing vibes of like and in the end all the people with actual power you know they were fine (laughs) yeah but i do think there's this interesting thing with john turturro's character whose complaint is that Whenever a Jewish person is winning on the show for a long time. Imagine that was true. When they lose, they are immediately replaced by like basically an Aryan (laughs) on the show. Who does better. And he's who does better. And he's claiming this and he sounds like a nut and a conspiracy theorist. And Rob Morrow is telling the story to someone and they're like, ha ha ha, that's crazy. And then he's like, I looked it up and it's true. (laughs) You're like, ah, and you're like, oh, (laughs) fuck, that's probably not good. So, I mean, I thought it was really good. I liked it a lot. There's interesting conversations going on. Oh, see, Rob Morrow's wife calls him the Uncle Tom of the Jews. That's so yes. new that that conversation was happening with the two of them. But I think it's really good. I like it a lot, even though midway through, I was like, I don't really like any of these people. Hmm. Okay. So like I said, this is one of my favorite films. I think I have a slightly different reading of the Rob Morrow character. I've seen this movie like two or three times before, probably. The thing I like about this movie overall is I think it really is an exploration of privilege and the role of social capital and the perverse incentives that capitalism sets up. And so like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's fine to say that Van Doren is for money, but he is this brilliant guy. And as a lecturer, he makes 
close to nothing. He comes from money, but he doesn't make a lot of money. And they point out, you know, Bozo the Clown makes more than you. Athletes make more than you. And you're like, that is fucked up. It always is. It's not mm-hmm. good that athletes make more money than teachers and engineers and yeah. people who society really runs on, right? And so I think Capitalism's there's- fucked up, man. It really is. So I think there's an interesting discussion of that. There's there's a bunch of lines I love from this movie. I really love the script. But I think at some point, the executives at the network, one of whom is Hank Azaria, who you also yeah, man. love, they say to Van Doren, you're doing the right thing, really. Everybody's making money. And you're like, oh, okay. That's that's the moral baseline. That's how you know when you're doing the yeah. right thing. I think privilege can feel invisible when you're inside it. And I think the relationship between Charles and his father is really interesting. There's a scene where they're having a celebration for his birthday and they're kind of sniping at each other about how much money he's making. Like that gives Charles value versus what they as intellectuals respect. They just want him to get back to his teaching. And he, I think he's always felt belittled by his father. And the father says, oh, I never thought of myself as having a level. And they cut to Rob Morrow's character. And I think where I disagree or feel differently about your reading of Rob Morrow's, I think at worst, he's a little bit more ambivalent, right? And it is borne out that all he really does end up doing is ruining Charles Van Doren's life. He wasn't wrong about what the outcome of bringing him in to testify was going to be. And yes, he went to Harvard, but I don't think he's under any illusion that he's fits in with these people. I think that he wants to, though, is is our point of distinction. Well, whether or not that's the case, I think he knows he can't. And whether or not you want to, right? I think everyone wants to be, as they were pointing out, beautiful and wealthy and respected. So they go to this club and it's it's kind of on the nose, but I still really liked it. The special of the day, Rama orders the Reuben and Ray Fiennes' his character orders the waspiest thing a person could eat, a, a Waldorf salad. <laughs> Um, and and Rob points out that there's no you know Rubens anywhere else in the club. And so yeah, they cut right to him as the dad saying, "I didn't think I had a level, but you know, everyone does." And I think when you are privileged, you don't necessarily see it. And I think that's the mm-hmm. case for a lot. That's of the privilege. Yeah, I also love the line where he's meeting with John Turturro at his house, and John Turturro is like, "They let you into Harvard," and his wife just goes, "Caps," because John Turturro keeps talking about how he should cap his teeth so he can be more photogenic. <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, yes. he got in because he's handsome." Uh-huh. But yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting discussion going on. And I think when you have money, it's true. Life does it becomes less about that. So there's a line that Ray finds his character says where he says, anyone who thinks money is ever just money couldn't have much of it. And so what he's really striving for is respect. And I think that gets conflated with money. Respect would be him being paid what he's worth as a person who's advancing knowledge that our society doesn't value. It's also about, you know, his relationship with his father. And I I just, I think it's all interesting. I think it's a really sharp, jazzy script. I love John Turturro in this movie. He is irritating. He's fantastic. He's doing a great job. Oh, I mean, he's great. Um, He's fantastic. And yeah, I love I love the end scene where they go, A, they go to the hearing, right? And the network executive and the guy from Geritol, who's Martin Scorsese, are all chummy with the senators. They, they golf together. Mm-hmm. They're best friends. Yep. And, you know, they've laughed at John Turturro. They're laughing at him. He thinks they're laughing with him. And then Van Doren gives his speech and they're like, oh, my gosh, you're so brave. Thank you for coming. This is it's amazing. Because like no amount of making money, no amount of going to Harvard, none of this will ever get you the social capital, I think particularly in 1950s America, of being white and male. It just won't. Well, and from he's from like an old respectable yeah. family. And I think that's what this movie is really about. And then in the end, right, you don't actually take down the structures of inequality. You just nope. You just kind of ruin one guy's life. And did he deserve it? I guess. Everyone was cheating, though. I don't know. <laughs> he ends up okay, though. 
he has, you know, this embarrassing moment, but it's not like he doesn't have anything to fall back on. He ends up continuing to teach, right? No, he doesn't continue to teach. Not at that school. I thought he gets a different teaching job. No, they say in the movie that he doesn't. He wrote an article after the fact that said he did, but it was many, many years later. He ended up getting a job working for Encyclopedia Britannica. So like he's not destitute, but it's not the, you know, getting back to like expectations and the expectations his parents had for him and that whole relationship. Mm -hmm. It's not what he thought his life would be. I also do love the scene. I think it's wonderfully tense. You know, we mentioned Robert Redford directed this movie. And so like, you know, this is the lesser of the movies. I think it would have been funny for Robert Redford to win again in a year where there's like this great subversive classic um, over Tarantino. So, you know, he beats Scorsese, he beats Tarantino. That would be hilarious. But I do also love the scene where it's the episode where Turturro is supposed to lose and Fines is supposed to win. And we both know that they told Turturro to take a dive and we know that they gave Fines the question. And I think the tension in that scene is just delicious of both of them running the calculus of the money versus their own personal pride versus yeah. how, they'll be, how they'll be seen by other people, like all of these layers of ethical values. And you see both of them make the wrong decision. Because the other mm-hmm. thing that I do also love about Turturro's character is his, also his sticking point is not that he had to take a dive, but he had to take a dive on a question that everybody he knows in his real yeah. life knows he knows the answer to. So he looks well, they, it's, insane. They intentionally embarrassed him yeah. with his final question which is the real indignity of it and then when he wants to testify before congress it's not because he wants everyone to know that the show is cheating it's because he wants everyone to know that he knew marty won best picture in 1954 or whatever year it was i was like oh i guess we're gonna have to watch marty yeah i love it this is my kind of movie though it's it's really it's 100 percent my speed i mm-hmm. love ray fines i love Ralph i love ray fines ray fines is the best but Turturro, I think, carries this movie. He's my he's favorite thing great. About it. He's he's I yeah. I think he's my favorite performance in the film too. He's he's really good. It would have been funny if Robert Redford had also been Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> funny but incorrect. Hey, we both said no. We wouldn't have been mad if this one won. Oh, I thought we were talking about director, but oh. that's a different question. Yes, yes, that would have been funny. <laughs> I think we all would have thought that funny. And it's not just because of Tarantino. It's because it would have beaten. Not just one or two, but three other movies that I think people would have argued were more deserving. It's funny. Drama at the Oscars. Okay. Okay. You want to do Shawshank or Pulp Fiction next? Let's go alphabetical and do Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, broadly, is about several different interlocking stories. So... It starts with this couple who are in a diner and talking about how they've been robbing convenience stores and then decide that they should rob a restaurant because nobody robs restaurants. <laughs> and so that becomes sort of the bookends because we start with them and we end with them, but we don't see a ton of them in the middle. And then we have a couple of criminal enforcer types who are Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta. And the two of them are going about their day. And while they're doing this, they're talking about the fact that the boss has this wife that he's particularly protective over. And John Travolta has been tasked with a job because their boss is going to be out of town and he wants Travolta to take out his wife to entertain her for a night. And so then we also have Bruce Willis plays this boxer character who the same boss of the other two has paid to throw a fight. And so he's agreed to do it. And then Travolta takes out Uma Thurman, who is the wife. And they have this night at Jack Rabbit Slims. And then they go back to her place afterwards. And she finds heroin in his coat, but thinks that it is cocaine. And she snorts it and has an immediate overdose. And he has to take her to 
his drug dealer's house where they stab her with a shot of adrenaline to the heart to bring her back to life. And then the two of them decide, let's never tell our boss about this. And then Bruce Willis has the boxing event, but he does not throw it because he instead puts all of his own money on him winning and then is in danger because he has not followed through on his promise that he got paid to do. So he's trying to leave town with the money that he will have won from the wagers. And he has this adorable little French wife lady. And she has packed because they're going to have to leave town. But she unfortunately has not brought from their apartment the important gold watch that was his father's. And so then he's trying to get it back. He ends up crossing and killing John Travolta, who's in his apartment. He then meets up with Marcellus accidentally on the street. (laughs) And the two of them get held hostage by these really weird guys who own a bond shop. And he ends up saving Marcellus who then is like, all right, leave LA. And then I will never, we'll never talk about this again. And then Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson are driving around with a hostage in their car and Travolta accidentally shoots him when they go over a bump. (laughs) So the car is full of blood and it's the middle of the day and they have to stop. And they call in Harvey Keitel, who's a cleaner fixer type, who shows them how to clean everything up and get out of there. Then they go to breakfast at the diner where finally the first two people that we met in the movie stage their robbery and that's the movie yeah there's another sort of you know as we said they're kind of intersecting and it's not told linearly so there's another point of intersection where when marcellus is telling bruce willis to throw the fight we see john travolta and samuel jackson come into the bar where they're having their meeting in these like t-shirts and shorts and it's very odd and then we learn that it's because they've been covered in blood and it's happening after the the cleanup that we see later in the film so that's also kind of happening i love the lack of chronology and i love how he doesn't really bother explaining that that's what's happening it just has to become clear to you because travolta dies in the middle and then he's alive at the end (laughs) and so he's trusting that you will figure out that none of this is happening in chronological order and it all sort of relates somehow all right that's pulp fiction what are your thoughts so this was i think just the second time i've seen pulp fiction and i'll be honest i don't love this movie yeah i think it is impressive you know it's hard it's really it's really hard to be a person watching this movie many years after it came out and even the first time I watched I was in college so still many years after this movie came Mm -hmm. out to get into the headspace of how new it would have felt at the time and that's my impression right at the time it felt totally new the way Tarantino writes dialogue was still really new really fresh you know I did have this experience when I saw Inglorious Bastards in the theater in that opening scene with Hans Landa being like, oh, my God, I'm watching something iconic unfold right before my eyes. This is the thing that's going to become iconic. And I imagine you'd have like a similar experience watching this in the theater. But to me as a later viewer, I'm just like, yeah, I know. I know this. I've seen this a million times. It's hard to like, you know, get that back. And I think for me, it just all ends up feeling like a lot of style and not a lot of substance. I don't know that there's a lot to take away from this movie. And then I I also just don't particularly like any of the characters. I'm not invested in any of them. I think I also just like don't particularly like them. And so it's really uneven in terms of how interesting I find the different storylines and scenes. I pretty much love everything that Samuel Jackson is in. And I don't know that I particularly love most of the rest of the movie. And because obviously Tarantino is so talky, I think if you're not mm-hmm. into it, it just kind of drags. <laughs> so definitely, you know, always impressed by it. I was thinking too, like, I love his later movies more than his earlier movies. 
And Inglorious Bastards is probably my favorite Tarantino. I haven't seen all of his films. But I think, right, what he doesn't have to do in Inglorious Bastards is set up stakes. Because you come in, you're like, I know who the Nazis are. I want them to lose. I I Mm -hmm. come into the scene with Hans Landa and I'm like, oh, I'm nervous about this because, you know, I'm bringing in (laughs) extra textual material. And I think in the films where that doesn't happen, I don't know that his stakes work for me. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. But I, I get it. It's cool. Yeah. It's capital C, cool. <laughs> How do you feel about Pulp Fiction? I love it. It's not my favorite Tarantino movie, and I have said and will always say that my favorite Tarantino movie is Reservoir Dogs. I don't think I can change it at this point. I think he's made a lot of amazing movies since then, but it's one of those things. I'm just always going to have that be my favorite. I think it is obviously more impressively made than Reservoir Dogs, but there's something so clean and tight about that I love. But the structure of this I think is fucking awesome. I think it totally works. I think every time the people are intersecting, it works. I love that it's non-chronological in sort of like no particular way. It's got a bookend, which structurally works. I love his dialogue. I am still, every time I watch something like this, I think it's super cool how he has changed the crime gangster drama and the way that they talk to each other, I think is fascinating. The stuff that they talk about is great. It's obviously really stylish. I love all of the actors in it. Obviously, Samuel L. Jackson rules, but (laughs) when doesn't he? I think Travolta's fucking great in it. I love the scene with him and Uma Thurman at the diner. I think is great. I love their conversation. And then I love the dancing, which I think is just unapologetically fun. It's not doing anything really for the narrative. It's just like he's taking a moment to do this fun dance scene. And you're like... Great. (laughs) Like, when have you ever seen a gangster mafia, whatever character dance (laughs) for fun for no reason? I just think it's delightful. Obviously, all the dialogue's real cool and tons of it's memorable. I find there's just enough going on and enough to interest me in all of the scenes that even though you get a third of the way through the movie before you're like, what's going on (laughs) how are any of these people meeting up with each other and what how do these stories relate but there's enough happening that it works for me i just think it's awesome i think it's real cool and i appreciate that the academy thought that it was cool too and it might not have been their cup of tea (laughs) for this sort of movie especially in a year of forrest gump and shawshank which i think are both excellent movies but are fairly traditional traditional, pieces yeah yeah I, i feel similar i think it's again right we said it's awesome that they nominated four weddings and a funeral and similarly it's awesome that they nominated this movie because it, it was they were making some choices they were trying some things cinema forward and i i can't argue yeah. with that all right we should get to our last nominee shawshank yes. redemption so shawshank redemption is about a man whose wife has an affair with a tennis pro a golf pro it doesn't matter a golf pro i think okay a golf pro it's really not important his wife has an affair and he's very upset about it he goes to confront them with a gun but then chooses not to but then later they are both murdered and he is found guilty of that crime although he maintains his innocence Mm -hmm. he is sent to prison where he meets a whole cast of characters of people who are also in prison most notably morgan freeman playing red a guy who can get you anything you want in prison and to start off with you know he's real quiet he's not your your normal prison type he used to be the vice president of a bank he's very smart he's very soft-spoken and he's having a pretty hard time in prison especially at first he has been targeted Mm -hmm. by this what are they called the sisters 
this gang of I think that's what they're called. Yeah. This gang of guys who rape other men in prison. It's real bad. It's real bad. But over time, he starts to sort of gain the trust and respect of the prison infrastructure because he starts doing their taxes for them. So he's able to get funding for the prison library. He's sort of, you know, making a life in prison. And then someone who comes into the prison much later knows the guy who actually murdered the Tim Robbins' wife and the golf pro. He tries to tell the warden about it. And then the warden has the, the informant shot. And then Tim Robbins makes the decision that like, you know what? I can't be here anymore. So he escapes and it's revealed at the end that he has been slowly and persistently working towards this the entire 20 years he's been in prison. He got Morgan Freeman to get him a little hammer to carve rocks with at the beginning mm -hmm. of the film that he has been slowly digging a tunnel from his cell through. As part of him doing everyone's taxes, he set up all these shell corporations and a fake person that he then pretends to be. He takes all of the money he embezzled for the warden. He escapes to Mexico. And you kind of just see all the parts and pieces come together of this whole time he's been in prison that he's been working towards this. Morgan Freeman is later finally paroled, and he ends up going down to Mexico to hang out with Tim Robbins. And that's sort of what Shawshank is. How do you feel about Shawshank? I like it. I think it's interesting because I find the ending in particular to be, I mean, it's obviously sentimental, but it's also so happy for what this movie is. It's mm -hmm. like, and then everybody lived happily ever after in Mexico. <laughs> You're like, that's kind of a wild ending for what this story is. But I do like that it's about this beautiful friendship between these two guys. And then they are, you know, it persists you don't really see a lot of movies about two male platonic friends and the end of it is and then they lived happily ever after with their business in mexico <laughs> and that's you're true. like that's lovely <laughs> i can't argue with that i think it's so fascinating when you get the reveal that he's been digging out the whole time which i'm sure is not a reveal for a lot of people because i feel like the one thing anyone knows about this movie is that he dug out of prison mm -hmm. but you don't see it. You think it's going to be a movie. If you know that, you think it'll be a movie about him digging out of prison, but it's a reveal. And the fact that he is the type of person who would diligently every night dig a hole out of the prison while at the same time actively creating this hugely successful business, basically, from inside the prison where he has won the respect of every single person in the prison system and he's funneling money and he's do it's like wild that he can do both of those things at the same time. And he wasn't necessarily planning to escape unless he needed to. And then he did need to. Yeah. <laughs> so he did it. What an interesting type of person you are, Tim Robbins. Morgan Freeman is great, as Morgan Freeman always is. 100%. He's delightful. I think the, the cast of characters of the other guys in the prison are very interesting. The stuff at the beginning with the Sisters gang is very hard to watch, unsurprisingly. But I wrote down this quote that I think is really interesting because I feel like often, like 95% of the time when people talk about prison rape, they're talking about it as a joke, which mm -hmm. is we could all acknowledge really fucked up. Yeah. But there's this interesting stuff where Andy is talking to Red about these guys because he's drawn their attention and he's jokingly sort of like, shouldn't I just let them know I'm not a homosexual? And Red says, neither are they. They'd have to be human first, which I thought was interesting and almost kind of progressive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they're not really playing this gang of prison rapists as they're deviants because they're gay. He's like, they're not even gay. They're just sadists and they're evil. It's prison. It's really fucking rough in here. And it is really rough. 
Yeah, it's a bad time. It's a bad time. And the prison system is messed up. And when the warden has that guy murdered, damn. Mm -hmm. I felt bad for that guy. He just got his GED. I know. He was really coming up in the world. He'd been tutored. He got the GED. He was starting to believe in himself. He learned to read. He feels so bad. And I like, I think it's, it's a nice story about a couple of friends. What did you think of it? So this was one I hadn't seen before. This is like a, a, a big movie I had not seen before. Yeah. All you hear is like, oh, my God, Shawshank. It's great. It's one of the best films of all time. It's incredible. Sure. And I think, unfortunately, right, with that in mind, it would have had to be a Spielbergian experience. I don't know that really... it lives up to that. Yeah. I didn't have a Spielberg no. experience. You know, I did know that he escaped from prison because mm-hmm. it is the thing you know about this movie. And I think it would have been cool to see this movie not knowing that because that reveal is sort of like I know this movie comes later it's like the usual suspects reveal where you're like you're putting it yeah. all together and you're like oh my god look at him well now. and then the the end of it a usual suspects is a good reference but I also feel like it plays like sort of a heist thing yeah at the end it's almost like a Ocean's Eleven and then here's how he did it I mean they're showing like and then he snuck out handfuls of rocks in his pockets <laughs> and like dumped <laughs> it in the yard every day very very slowly and then you see yeah. him the, the bank and he's you know he told Morgan Freeman about how he set up this whole scheme for mm-hmm. the warden and you think, oh, he's just being clever. But he's like, no, I set it up for me. I'm that guy now. I got a passport in that name, you know? Yes. I didn't get quite the experience because I knew he was going to escape if it, if it had come out of nowhere. Sure. I think the reason I wanted to talk about Forrest Gump first is I feel like a lot of, again, the complaints about Forrest Gump could be levied at this movie, and yet no one does. Like, talk about mm-hmm. mawkish and sentimental at the end. It's like, exactly, yeah. we both got out of prison and got to live a life, and the two guys who were the bad guys got their comeuppance. There's no discussion of the broader system. You know, you've cast a black man in the Morgan Freeman role. He's not black in the book, which I think does make the joke where they ask him why his name is Red, and he says, I guess it's because I'm Irish better, because I think in the book he's actually an Irish. He probably is Irish. <laughs> Yeah. That's hardly a joke at all. Yeah, there's, you know, there's no discussion about racial differences and how the justice system treats people. Like there's nothing yeah. broader happening in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's not commenting on anything at all beyond the interpersonal relationships of these specific people. And I think the fact that it ends with like, oh, these two bad apples got their comeuppance. It's like those guys aren't just bad apples. Prison is... It's the system, y'all. Yeah. It's <laughs> awful. Right. So, you know, it is this very happy ending, but you're like, but everyone's still in prison and we're still sending people to prison and yeah it's not it's not good so you know mm-hmm. that that wasn't great for me i will say i loved all the stuff with brooks brooks is an mm-hmm. older prisoner who gets released after he's been in the prison for his entire adult life and they talk through how difficult it is to reacclimate back to the outside world because everything has changed so much and he's not able to do it and he ends up committing suicide and i thought that was it was quite sad and also he has to leave his pet birds behind it is sad he has this crow or raven or something that's his pet bird in the prison it's so sad. You love that bird. He did. There's a happier movie where that crow or raven finds him out of prison, which I feel like is something a crow or raven would be capable of doing. Absolutely. I was amazed that he was able to be like, okay, you leave now. And the crow was like, okay, bye. Like I was shocked at that. He was like, sweet, I'm out. Yeah. I think you're right that there's a version where he finds him and then Brooks is like, Whole oh, again. at least I have yeah. my bird. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I think the the tidiness of the ending wasn't great for me. And then yeah, probably not fair to the movie. Just a little underwhelmed just yeah. because of all the things I, I heard about this. I think one of the reviews that I saw, the synopsis of it was like, this is one of the most overrated movies of all time, but it is very good. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, you know, 
Yeah, I think that's fair enough. People have built this movie up in quite the interesting way, I think. And it's, I think it's a good watch. I think it works emotionally. I think I cry at certain points. It's well structured. It's well structured. It's, you're right that it's not really saying anything, which I think is probably something maybe your prison movie should do, but I guess it's not required. And so... I think it's it's very good, but it's, I wouldn't call it one of the greatest movies of all time. And I also wouldn't call it the greatest travesty of all time that it lost to Forrest Gump. Yeah. Shawshank. Shawshank. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Is there anything else to be considered, I guess, is the question to ask here. Yes. So we, we talked about the box office and the number one movie that uh, of the year was The Lion King, which I think is a masterpiece. Yeah, I would have nominated The Lion King. Easy peasy. So this is, of course, well before they institute the Best Animated Feature Award at the Oscars, yeah. which we've mentioned before, we'll mention again, came way too late. But also, probably more animated features should be in the conversation of actual Best Picture. Yeah. You know this about me. The Lion King, I don't think I love as much as many people because I have a weird, inexplicable hang up about movies that center around animals. Mm-hmm. But that's very but that's personal, thing, which you acknowledge, <laughs> and, and not a reflection on the film. But it's iconic. It's perfectly structured. It's the songs. It's right in that sweet spot of Disney. Oh, it also has a song that you despise. So there's that I, part. I do really hate "Can You Feel the Love Tonight" and the whole section of that film. But the opening song, "The Circle of Life," come on, it's fire. That's a top five Disney song. I just can't wait to be king. It's come great. on, be prepared. Get it together. That's good, too. That's a good villain song. <laughs> and, you know, it's a it's a cautionary tale about overexploiting resources. Scar's out here, like, make the Pride Lands great again. Let's use up all of our resources. I'll give you what's coming to you. And, and then within years, they are living in a hellscape. It's amazing, actually, how quickly he destroys the entire ecosystem. <laughs> He's bad. The Lion King. You've That's probably seen King. it, listener. But if you haven't seen it in a while, watch it again. It's a good time. Unless you... Don't like movies about animals, in which case don't watch it again. You won't like it anymore. Yeah. Or if you're like my friend's husband who doesn't like any animation. Boy, that's fascinating. But let's yeah. move right past. <laughs> so we all got we all got things going on. We all got things. So yeah, I guess then the question is about cultural impact. This is an interesting year where tons of the movies have huge amounts of cultural impact. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. I mean, a lot of the ones that were nominated have cultural impact. Lion King obviously does. We will get to these later. But in addition to the great Jim Carrey movies, there are other popular movies from this year that I think are fantastic and worth remembering whether or not they should be Best Picture nominees. Yep. Three of these films that were nominated are on the AFI Top 100 list. Shawshank's at 72. Forrest Gump is at 76. Pulp Fiction's at 94. 94 for 1994. Wow. Wow. But did we watch anything else for this year? Is there anything else we did. that maybe should be nominated? We watched two other movies this year, and we can discuss them in any order. But we watched Ed Wood, and we watched Heavenly Creatures. Some a couple of very different films, I think. Yeah, from definitely. each other. <laughs> and I think probably from the other nominees, to be fair. Yeah. So let's start with Ed Wood, because why not? (laughs) Ed Wood is a Tim Burton movie about the supposed worst director of all time, Ed Wood. And it's kind of a biopic, but it starts right before he tries to make his first movie as he's staging a play and then goes through the production of his most famous film, the classic bad movie, Plan 9 from Outer Space. And so there's that element to it. 
Ed Wood was a crossdresser. He liked wearing women's clothing. And so this is also a film about him sort of coming into that, becoming more open with that and finding people who love him, even though that's true, which is pretty hard in the 1950s and 60s when this movie takes place. But he accomplishes it. He does. He also befriends Bella Lugosi towards the end of his life, who is struggling with drug addiction and sort of reinvigorates him right before he passes away. So that's kind mm-hmm. of all what's happening at Wood. You hadn't seen this before, right? I had not. And obviously, lots of people had told me to watch it. I knew it was one of those. It's a fairly classic Burton Depp team up. And I thought it was really fun. I mean, it's stylish, as Tim Burton does, but not really his traditional style. I think it's very cool looking, but it doesn't do a lot of his specific the things you would recognize as Tim Burton things. It's in black and white, which is interesting too, because he's usually quite specific with his color choices as well. Yes. And the cast is really good. I think that Edward is obviously a fascinating character. There are a lot of really good character actors giving good performances in this. Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi is awesome. Mm -hmm. I love him. I think there's just something really interesting, which I'm sure is what Tim Burton liked about it, about the drive to create art, whether or not that art is good. These types of characters that are like, he cannot not make these movies. It is his life's work. It is it is his passion. Nothing will stop him from making these movies, even though they are not good movies. They are <laughs> pretty bad. Much, pretty much no one, even at the time, is liking the movies that he's making. But he won't be, he's undefeated about it. I love when he has sent the first movie that he made to a the Warner Brothers studio and he's trying to convince them to let him make another movie and then he gets on the phone with the guy and he's like, oh, it's the worst movie you ever saw? The next one will be better. <laughs> and you're just like, that's great. I love your attitude. This is fantastic. I love all of his philosophies about film. I love when he's convinced the church to give him money to make a movie. Mm-hmm. And they're all on set as it's happening. And he only ever does one take, really. As long yeah. as he, the people have said the dialogue that he needs them to say. He he's doesn't like, have great. the money to do more than one take. Right. He's like, great, print it. Next one. And so then the guys from the church are like, do you know anything about how to make <laughs> a film the the gravestones fell over no one is going to believe that this is real he's just like no one is going to notice that films aren't about the tiny details they're about the big picture and it's like good for you buddy i really like his energy very similarly there's a scene in one of the earlier films he's making where he's hired tor johnson who was a wrestler at the time and he like bumps into the set as he's trying to go through a doorway and his, yes. his cinematographer is like you want to date that again and he's like no that character would struggle with that every day <laughs> Not yeah, being in real towards- life he would be struggling with that all the time and you're like you know what ed you're right sure. <laughs> He's just delightful. And yeah, the stuff with him cross-dressing is so interesting because that is what he ends up writing his first movie about is basically semi-autobiographical about him and his girlfriend at the time who is not pleased about it. But then as soon as it's out there in the world, he sort of is just like, this is what we're doing now. Take it or leave it. The people that he surrounds himself with are all these sort of fringe film folks who are all fine with it. And it's really interesting because then you have Sarah Jessica Parker's character being like, this is not acceptable behavior. And he's like, no one has a problem with it. And she's like, you've surrounded yourself with freaks. <laughs> Nobody else will like this. And you're like, Maybe you don't fit in, Sarah Jessica Parker, because everybody else is fine with it. Yeah, she's kind of shrill, but at the same time, you know, not so much about the stuff with the cross-dressing, but she has a breaking point scene where she's like, you guys are making garbage. This isn't good. And you're like, she's not technically wrong. 
the movie She's not technically is wrong. Bad. But it's not the point. But what's interesting is that he's making such bad stuff that he will be remembered. Yeah. <laughs> he's making memorable stuff. Yes. And good on him. Good for him. You're going to be voted the worst director of all time, Ed Wood. You're, you're going to be remembered forever. <laughs> it's really interesting. I think it's a fun cast of characters who love movies and they're so happy to be working in the movies. And the end result is not the point. It's really about the process. It is. Yeah, I'd seen this movie before. I don't even remember this, but our friend in high school, Ricky, really loved this movie. And she would quote the part where Ed Wood is talking to Bella Lugosi about how he does his hand movements. And Bella Lugosi goes, That scene's awesome. You have to be double jointed and you have to be and Hungarian. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I really like the dialogue in this movie. It's pretty fun and funny throughout. And I think it is sweet that he, you know, it's good to be yourself and be loved for who you are. As long as you're not hurting anyone, he's not hurting anyone. And he's able to find all these people. I really love the scene. So he and Sarah Jessica Parker break up and then he meets Patricia Arquette and he tells her, you know, I dress in women's clothing. And she goes, does that mean you don't like having sex with girls? And she, he goes like, no, I love having sex with girls. And she just kind of goes, okay. And you're like, this yeah. is the relationship for you, buddy. This it's is great. It's lovely. Really nice. And then the two of them stay married until he yeah. dies like 20 years later. And yeah, I was watching some stuff with Tim Burton. And he said that's what attracted him. This is like boundless optimism and just yeah, doing what you want to do. Because why not? He's just infectious. I mean, the character is delightful. You you got to love that guy, even if, you know, you don't like anything that he's making. He's just a great character. Yeah. And absolutely. When he says at the end, this is the film I'll be remembered for. He's not wrong. He is right. Good for you, Ed. Yeah, I really like this one. I think it's enjoyable to watch. I think it's worth watching. It's a fun time. I'm glad I finally watched Ed Wood. Yeah, and I was looking it up. So I ended up cutting our discussion of Big Fish in the 2003 episode because we, we just talked about too many movies in that episode. Mm -hmm. But Tim Burton's never been nominated for Best Director. He's never had a live action picture nominated for Best Picture, which I think is interesting because he's a named director. If you talk to people about mm -hmm. Tim Burton, they will know who he is. He's a household name director, which yeah. that's a rarity. That's a list of probably less than 10 directors, I think. And he makes particular and interesting movies and just... Two of his animated pictures have been nominated for Best Animated Feature. But I think mm -hmm. this could have been a real opportunity. You know, I would have, I think I'd slot in Ed Wood over four weddings and a funeral, personally. Yeah. I just feel bad because I think we both agree we want rom-coms yeah, in do. there. I do. But it is the weakest of these five, yeah. which is a shame. I mean, if Ed Wood had also been released in a weaker year, which we could say for any of these, it's a tough year. Mm -hmm. And by which I mean a great year for viewers. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. So anything else about Ed Wood? It's good. It's a good depth good. performance. Everybody watch it. Let's talk about Heavenly Creatures. Had you seen this before? I had not. I've been wanting to see this movie for yeah, a long time. So glad to have a reason to watch it. Heavenly Creatures is based on a true story about two young women in New Zealand who murder one of the young women's mother. And it was like the crime of the century in New mm -hmm. Zealand. Super sensational. It was interesting. I was watching some stuff. This is a Peter Jackson film. It was co-written by Fran Walsh about how... They ended up deciding to focus the movie on the girls' friendship because coming out of this, they were just portrayed as monsters, like these two insane teen lesbians and, you know, yeah. who murdered the one mother. And Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh really wanted to try to humanize them. But it's about these two girls. They're both sort of outsiders. One of them is Kate Winslet. She's British. 
and she and her family have moved to New Zealand. She has a history of lung problems. Mm-hmm. And the other girl is played by Melanie Linsky, and she's a New Zealander, and she has had some kind of bone disorder. So like they both don't participate in gym class, and they're able to bond over their imaginings. So they have wild imaginations. They start writing these fantasy stories together. They basically fall in love, whether or not it was actually sexual or just platonic. A little bit of controversy about that after the fact. Interesting. I thought some of that was pulled from their, from her diary. Well, that's interesting because all of the passages from the diary that are in the movie are real. And there are particular passages that if you read them, you'd go, they were lesbians. But one of them after the fact, after they revealed their identity said, we were not lesbians. But you're like, "Uh, it doesn't read like that, but I don't know. Were you not? Or were you, are you now, you don't want that to be out there because it was from your diary, which fair enough. Yeah. I don't know. They fall in love. I think, again, whether it's platonic, romantic, sexual. Maybe it's not sexual, but it's romantic. They fall in love. Yeah. And then their parents are increasingly concerned that they are lesbians, which at the time was a mental disorder and something could be put in prison for. Again, five of the movies we've talked about are in the 50s. Yeah. Also, weirdly enough, in both Ed Wood and Heavenly Creatures, there's a representation of Orson Welles. Like, they had to hire an actor to play Orson Welles. How good is Vincent D'Onofrio as Orson Welles? It's uncanny. I was like, I didn't realize how much they could make him look like Orson Welles. That was actually crazy. That's in Ed Wood. He meets Orson Welles in Ed Wood, and it's, it's a different guy doing the voice, I think. Yes. But, but he yeah. looks a lot like Orson Welles. He really does. So yeah, Orson Welles is also in both of these movies. Weird. And so yeah, the parents are increasingly concerned. Kate Winslet, Juliet's parents, their relationship starts to fall apart. Her dad loses his job at the university. So they're going to move away. And these girls cannot handle the idea of being separated. And so through convoluted logic, they somehow get into their head that the real impediment of their being together is Pauline's mother, the other girl's mother, who will not let her go with Juliet to South Africa. And so they decide if we can kill my mom and make it look like an accident, we can be together. They do not do a good job. They do the worst job at making it look like an accident. And also she's written about it in detail in her diary, uh, which the cops find immediately. And so they end up going to prison. Yeah. And that's the end of the film. I'm really curious to hear what you thought about this movie. So tell me. I liked a lot of things about it. I've been excited to watch it for a long time because I love Melanie Linsky mm-hmm. <laughs> in particular. I mean, Kate Linslet is an excellent actress, but I'm a huge Melanie Linsky fan. And I had heard many times, of course, about this being the origin of them and him finding them. And they're so young and they're both really good. And so I think that's just fun to see these really good actresses be really young and in this. Their relationship is really interesting. I think it's fascinating to watch how young passionate people can become obsessed with each other they can become obsessed with lots of things because that's a you're like most passionate part of your life but they've become obsessed with each other to quite the extent mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's interesting to see the repercussions of that on their lives i'm really intrigued by how it's melanie linsky's mother that becomes the object of their upset Yes. And there's a lot going on with that. There's this element of Kate Winslet's parents are wealthy and educated and very like cosmopolitan. um, Cosmopolitan is the perfect word (laughs) for it. And so there's this romance to them, especially for Melanie Linsky, who comes from these parents that are, you know, lower class and don't have a lot of money. They have boarders in their house all the time. 
And so I think when Melanie Linsky, who is this angsty teenager who doesn't get along with her parents, as really none of them get along with their parents, but she gets accepted into the fold of this other family at first and is caught up in the, you know, they're so worldly and traveled and interesting. And now I'm a part of their interesting life and I'm interesting. And the mother has called her her surrogate daughter or whatever at some point, and she feels really accepted by them. And so then it's fascinating that the real architect of the splitting up of their friendship is Kate Winslet's father, Mm -hmm. right? Who is the one who becomes convinced that the two of them are lesbians. And it's very concerning for him and he wants to break them up. And he's got a lot going on because his wife is having this affair that he knows about. And they're like very unhappy and have this open relationship now because they can't figure out how to get divorced without messing everything up. But she's in love with this who is he? He's like another tennis pro or something, right? I don't know. <laughs> Bill. I don't know what Bill does. Bill. And so, yeah, he's the one who goes to Melanie Linsky's parents to say, like, we need to be concerned about this. We have to break them up. And they have to see therapists and stuff. Like, yeah. there's a, a lot goes on. And so it's really interesting that it's this poor mother of Melanie Linsky who doesn't deserve it. No. <laughs> This poor woman. I felt so bad for both of her parents because she really is falling apart. Her her grades are slipping. She's dropping out of school. She's the the whole thing with that one border, which we can get into. Oh, my God. And it's like, I don't know what you do with a kid who's behaving like this. And they are trying their best. And her dad is so sweet. And they both love her so much. They're, They're sweet parents. Her dad is really particularly sweet. Yeah. And she just is not having it. It's one of those situations where she's so prickly because she's 14 and 15 years old. And he keeps trying to be like, we're bonding. Let's have a fun time. You love this music. Let's dance or whatever. And she's like, "Ugh, dad, leave me alone. <laughs> and you're like, I don't really know what they should have done differently. You know, no. how do you stop something like this from happening? But yeah, we should talk about the borders because I think that's an interesting situation. Yeah. <laughs> so even... They have this first boarder who I also think is like kind of weirdly obsessed with her, but that never comes to anything. So Juliet has has had, I don't know if it's a recurrence or she's just gotten tuberculosis. So they're a little separated because she's, her parents are actually very neglectful. They keep sending her away when she's sick. So they sent her away to like, what did she say, to the Bahamas for years when she was a child to recuperate, but she obviously Mm -hmm. feels very abandoned by them. And they had had apparently promised that they would never be separated again. And then they send her to this place to recuperate from her tuberculosis while they go back to England. And so For like three months. Yeah. So she's left alone, not able to attend school in this hospital where everyone else is seemingly an adult and has tuberculosis and her parents aren't there at all. She's 15 years old. It's not acceptable. And so, yeah, now Melanie Linsky is also, you know, without her friend. And I think she does go to visit her and tells her like, oh, John is in love with me. John is this boarder who I'm guessing is like 20 years old, 18, 19, yeah, 20, maybe somewhere in there. Like that. He's an adult. He's a boarder. Yeah. And Kate Winslet at first is upset about it. And she's like, oh, don't be upset. I, boys are dumb. But he's very persistent. He comes to her one night, sort of talks her into letting him get into bed with her because he's cold. She kind of sleeps in like a shed away from the house. Yeah, I think for her own independence, because she's a teenager and wants to be away from the family, they have some sort of shed that's separated from their house that she uses as her room. So he comes there in the middle of the night. Yes. And it's so interesting because he's cuddling up to her and holding her and telling her he loves him. And she's just so wrapped up in her own world. She's telling him about this, this world that they've invented and sort of half paying attention to him, but also sort of letting him continue to 
assault her. And then the dad comes and finds them in bed and it's a whole blow up. But then, of course, she gets in a lot of trouble, even though it should just be him that's in trouble. Yeah, because she's a child. (laughs) It's the 50s. And so that's part of also the break in her relationship with her parents because her mother is very upset and the dad is upset as well. And then she sneaks out of the house at night to go and, and sleep with this 20-year-old man, which is very uncomfortable. But it's, again, that scene I found really interesting because as she's having sex with him, she's escaping into her fantasy world with Kate Winslet. So Kate mm-hmm. Winslet is in her fantasy as she's losing her virginity way too young to this man and having you know, this kind of traumatic experience. It's very yeah. interesting. I really thought it was cool, the stuff that they did with their imaginary world. They have built all of these clay figurines of all of the various characters that they have invented. And so then whenever she's going into this fantasy escape world, she sees not just Kate Winslet, but then life-size versions of all of the clay figurines that they've built, which I Yellow. thought was pretty cool. The yellow, exactly. <laughs> it's really interesting the way that they've invented this fictional world as because they have this... Really, if they have a prime characteristic, it's very active imagination. So mm-hmm. that is the thing that bonds these girls and the thing that drives them through all of this. So they've invented this world of this queen and king or whatever who are in love. And then there's the other cast of characters around them. And they write letters to each other as the queen and king. And they sort of mock play as the queen and king all the time, which is interesting and feels like them sort of role-playing, having a romance with each other, which they're sort of doing anyway. But then in the in the visions, Kate Winslet is the queen, and then there's this other character that they've invented who is like a maid or something who's supposed to look like Melanie Linsky's character. And she has, in their fictional world, she has a romance with Diello. But really, Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky's characters, by the end, they sort of only refer to each other as the name of their fictional characters. Yeah which is also interesting. But just the way that all of that played out in the imaginary life and in the real life, the blending of the two is fascinating. Yeah, there's really interesting name stuff happening throughout this whole movie, which, you know, if like you're into magic, names have power, right? Sure. And so when they first meet Kate Winslet, she's joining their French class and they do the thing which happens in many French classes, they did in ours, where they get like a different name and that's sort of the first step of it. But Mm -hmm. there's also the thing where Melanie Linsky's parents call her by her middle name and she's increasingly rejecting of it. So she's being called a different name by her parents than being called by Mm -hmm. most of the world than being called by Kate Winslet, who is her her actual intimate. And so that's interesting, too. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff going on with these teenage girls. They're fascinating creatures. Yeah. They're heavenly creatures. Heavenly creatures. (laughs) So the thing I was curious about this is, you know, I know you don't love Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about Peter Jackson's direction in this film? I liked it more than I like Lord of the Rings. A, a thing that I don't like about Lord of the Rings, and I feel bad ascribing this to him, but it reads to me as sort of self-indulgence. Like he's he will let everything go on for longer than I think it should. And he will let everything play out to his own satisfaction. And I want things to be tighter and more restrained. I didn't feel that in this. I think he was mostly presenting the things you needed to see. I think the stuff that he was giving you was all helpful for the story. I think it was tighter. I liked it. 
Okay. I do think it's fun if you are a fan of Lord of the Rings. You can sort of see the through line. Because I actually haven't seen a ton of his earlier stuff. He he obviously came from a horror comedy background to Lord of the Rings. There's one shot where... Juliet has had a, a bit of a oh I think it's when it's first revealed that her parents are going to be going back to England this is even before she gets tuberculosis and leaving her in New Zealand and so she runs away and then Melanie Linsky chases after her and there's this aerial shot of them running over New Zealand and I was like oh that's gonna come back I see that <laughs> and yeah. you can see a, a through line too of the way they did the the clay people and through like the orcs and their special effects so that's kind of fun i did mm-hmm. love so the scene where kate winslet's father first shows up to talk to melanie linsky's parents about how they might be lesbians is shot full horror comedy and it's like yeah. a lot of fun yes oh and i should say i loved the scene when they after they've seen the orson wells movie and then they have this imagined scene where he's chasing them around like it's the third man and they're yeah. terrified <laughs> and he's everywhere and that was a great scene I like that a lot too. But yeah, they're doing all these zooms and it's a dark and stormy night as he's coming up and being like, they might be homosexuals. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I also liked when they went to the, um, you know, obviously it's, it is terrible and I don't want to take away from it, but I liked when they went to the doctor and the doctor's just like, homosexuality can strike at any time. <laughs> he's not wrong. <laughs> I was just like, I like that as a line. Yeah, it's really good. I am fascinated. I didn't even think about it by how much of this conversation has been about the 1950s. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. (laughs) That movie and Ed Wood and Shawshank and Quiz Show and then part of Forrest Gump. Yeah, it's the 50s, y'all. It's the 50s in the 90s, which honestly, better than the 50s in the 50s from what we've seen. Although in the 50s, a lot of Rome for some reason. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, things in the 50s are in ancient Rome. Things in the 90s are in the 50s. You know, nobody wants to make movies about their own time. But I really liked it. And yeah, again, kudos to the whole crew for discovering Melanie Linsky and putting Kate Winslet in a film. That's, That's pretty good. Yeah, man. Pretty good job, guys, on the casting. Great work on the (laughs) casting front. Okay. So I want to, we don't have to discuss these, but I do want to mention just because I love these movies and they all came out this year and everyone should see them if they haven't. Speed came out this year. Classic action film. We love Keanu. We love Sandy B. It's great. It's super tight. It's good action filmmaking. And it's, you know, the stakes are clear. Everything works out exactly the way that it should. It's a good movie. Mm Mm-hmm. I will also mention Reality Bites, which is the film of Generation X, I believe. It is the directorial debut of Ben Stiller. It's got Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder and Janine Garofalo and Steve Zahn. It's got all your faves. And it's a delightful little movie about the disaffected youth post-graduation, not knowing what to do with their lives, that sort of thing. And then also this year is Clark's classic Kevin Smith film, which I really like. It's super spare interesting cheap filmmaking black and white and great dialogue and not a lot going on production wise they're just in a convenience store the whole day i love when a young filmmaker wants to make movies and clearly has restrictions but makes the movie anyway and so you're like this is what we're doing man this is what i can afford to shoot (laughs) exactly ed wood so those are three 1994 movies that i felt compelled to call out but it's a great year for movies there's tons of great Mm -hmm. stuff out there All right, we've done all of that to wrap back around to the final question of what should have won? Honestly, I'm good with Forrest Gump. Obviously, we talked about it at length. I think, again, it works on a watch level. I find it emotionally affecting. I think it is saying something larger about the world. 
it's interesting, the discussion around it. Yes, indeed. I'm perfectly happy with Forrest Gump winning. I think if we're picking our favorites, I probably would have given it to Pulp Fiction, but I said four of these movies I'd be fine with winning. So it's an abundance of wealth here. I mean, if we're picking our favorites, I'd give it to Quiz Show, but I also understand it has not had the cultural impact of some of these other films. (laughs) Sure enough. So did the Oscars get it wrong? Despite what the Washington Post thinks, no. (laughs) In fact, it is not the greatest travesty or miscarriage of justice in Oscars history, as far as I can tell. But at the end of this, if we've changed our minds about that, we will let you know once we've watched all of the movies. So I agree. Oscars, you did a fine job this year. Let's take a little trip down the lane to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. The man was alive this year. So why aren't you in a good movie? (laughs) He was 14 years old. What's he thinking? Not a lot of teens, actually, in any of these movies. Well, there's the teens in Heavenly Creatures, but I don't think he could have played either of them. No. (laughs) That would not have been the right role for him. All right. So then leaving that aside, any age Jake Gyllenhaal, who would we have him play? Gut reaction. Mm -hmm. Tim Robbins and Shawshank. I think Shawshank is the place for him. I think that is his vibe. His version of it might have been slightly grittier, darker, Mm -hmm. whatever, is something he would have been drawn to. I think this is the like happiest, shiniest version of a prison drama that you could probably achieve. But I think him and Shawshank makes a lot of sense to me. What do you think about him somewhere in Quiz Show? My immediate thought was, that's interesting because he's half Jewish. So are we making him one of the Jews? Are we making him one of the Gentiles? He could be either. (laughs) To be fair, John Turturro is not Jewish. Yeah. Here's the thing. John Turturro has to be ugly. You don't want to replace him. Well, also, he has to be ugly. I don't know if oh, yeah, he can sure. ugly up. I'm putting that in Jake quotes. Gyllenhaal. No one can yeah, see yeah. you. I'm not calling John Turturro ugly. John Turturro is a beautiful man, but it is part of that character that the America supposedly thinks that he's the unattractive one. So yeah, I think like Jake would be good in the Rob Morrow character, but I like him in Shawshank yeah. a little bit better. I like I him in Shawshank too. I think that gives him a lot to do. There's a lot of emotional range to mm-hmm. Tim Robbins in that. Excellent. He's cast. We did it. We did it. Okay. Do you see yourself coming back to any of these films? Again, I think I've seen Forrest Gump three or four times before this, at least, you know, and I, I don't want to say I had a good time watching because it is really sad, but I did not dislike the experience of watching Forrest Gump and I could see myself watching Forrest Gump again. If it came on, if you came on to it in the middle at 11 p.m. or <laughs> yeah. whatever that insane phrase is. I mean, I'm probably not watching a whole movie at 11 p.m. at this stage in my life. I'm a little too old for that, no. but it's okay. I would watch Quiz Show again in an instant, and I think I'd watch Ed Wood and Heavenly Creatures again. I've been thinking about Heavenly Creatures a lot. I, I think I'd like to revisit that. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. There's just, there's just not a ton of movies made about teen girls just across the board. It's true. It's just true. I am sure we'll rewatch Pulp Fiction at some point in my life. I would happily rewatch Ed Wood. I thought that was a fun time. Have we learned anything about what makes the best picture? There was a lot of conversation and drama about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think critics of Forrest Gump will even admit it was a crowd pleaser. It was highly popular. It Mm -hmm. does have scope. It's taking place over a long period of time. I mean, it's kind of an epic. It is. It's got technological advancement yep it's kind of doing all the things really it's got a a performance of an actor disappearing into a role that they had to do a lot of like dramatic things to achieve it's got gary sinise 
that's really how you know something should be a best picture. I think other than Forrest Gump, probably Shawshank is the most likely runner up just because it also yes. feels pretty Oscar-y and like uplifting and about hope mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Mockish and sentimental. Mockish and sentimental. <laughs> Pulp Fiction is probably too experimental, but cool that it got nominated. Yeah. So I know. think they probably were were patting themselves on the backs for having nominated Pulp Fiction <laughs> this year. They were like, we're so cool and hip. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think it's a huge surprise that Forrest Gump won, but maybe more of a surprise that they actually nominate both Pulp Fiction and Four Weddings and a Funeral, mm-hmm. which is cool. Yeah. So I guess we're like applauding the Academy this year. I guess. <laughs> like, well done, guys. That's yeah. an un- uncomfortable feeling for me. Biopics. Uh, none of the nominees are traditional biopics, but I do think it's interesting that Forrest Gump kind of is a biopic of a fictional person. It is. <laughs> we- I was thinking about that, too. Like, it is pretty episodic, but something about it really hangs together for me. You know what I don't think we mentioned while we were talking about it? And it obviously goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. The scene when he's running across America is so beautiful because America is so pretty. Yeah, you get to see a lot of different vistas. It's great. (laughs) It's gorgeous. Which is the thing that we always say about Westerns. It's like, well, at least America's pretty. It is, guys. It's really, it's big. It's there's a lot going on. It's beautiful. A lot of different types of places. It's cool. Oh, not not to keep going back to Forrest Gump, but one thing I didn't mention, which is one of my favorite parts and definitely got me. You know, Jenny's asking him about his experience in the war, and he talks about when the sky clears and he sees the stars, and he talked about running across America and just seeing how beautiful it was, how transcendent mm-hmm. that experience was, and it was. I've been reading quite a bit of Vonnegut recently. It was very like everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. And I was like, this is really, this is really getting to me. And the lead up to that too, where he's talking about how it started raining and all the various rain stuff. Yeah. I mean, he, the way that he talks about the war is really awesome and yeah. interesting and like lyrical. <laughs> it's, it's really beautiful dialogue. I think it's a good movie. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah, non-nominees though. We did talk about Edward, which is Ed an Wood, yeah. unusual because that is a biopic that I like. And Heavenly Creatures is at least about real people, though it's yeah. not like your traditional. Here's the story of this person's life. And Edward is a subsection of his life. We're not getting his childhood in like oh, I saw a picture and I love pictures. I'm a kid, which is always better anyway. If you're gonna make a biopic, pick a part of their life. Don't do the whole life. Yes. Okay, so checking in on original ideas, we have a pretty good ratio this year. We have two of our five movies, our original ideas, Four (laughs) Weddings and a Funeral and Pulp Fiction. All three of the others are based on a book. Yes, or history, as in the case of Quisha. Uh, Yeah, Quisha is based on history, but I think it is based on a book about that It's based on a book that the Rob Morrow character wrote, yeah. Yeah. Did you know that guy went on to marry Doris Kearns Goodwin? That's wild, and I did not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, okay, what are we talking about next time? We are going way back in time. Ooh, yeah. So early. We're talking about the sixth Academy Awards, or the films of 1933. It's another 10-nominee year, so get ready for a tourney, guys. The nominees were 42nd Street, A Farewell to Arms, Cavalcade, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, Lady for a Day, Little Women, The Private Life of Henry VIII, She Done Him Wrong, Smiling Through, and State Fair. What a collection. Some <laughs> yeah. great titles in there. I am excited to see how they are. I, I know 
sometimes with the old movies, it can be like a lot of them are epics and a slog, but we looked these up and in 1933, they were still keeping their movies tight. So excited it's, about that. It's pre-gone with the wind. So most of them are like 80 minutes. <laughs> Hell yeah. I think one of them is in like the 60s. Now that's a movie. <laughs> Not a feature-length film by modern standards. Nope, it's an episode of television now. (laughs) Okay, and we should say, right, this is one of the few years, and certainly the first year we're doing that's pre-code, pre-the Hayes Mm -hmm. Code. So I think that's going to be interesting. Very exciting. Hopefully that goes well. We'll find out next time. In the meantime, if you have comments, questions, concerns, anything you want to tell us, if you want to tell us how wrong we are about Forrest Gump, please feel free. Reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. And we are on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. Our website is OscarsWrongPod.com. And if you're enjoying the pod, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.